Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dear listeners, welcome back to New Books in Urban Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zelnina, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Matthias Bernd about his new book, The Commodification Gap, Gentrification and Public Policy in London, Berlin and St. Petersburg. The book was published by Wiley in 2022 in the Iger Studies in Urban and Social Change book series. Matthias Bernd, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Uh, wonderful to have you here with us. Um, and to start the interview, maybe you could tell us a few words about yourself and introduce your work. Sure. Um, by qualification, I'm a political scientist and sociologist. I work as an urban scholar as at, at the Leibniz Institute for Research on Society and Space in Aachen, which is um, a place close to Berlin, in Germany. And I'm an adjunct professor for sociology at the Humboldt University. Um, personally, I am from Berlin. I grew up and lived in Berlin for most of my lifetime. Um, and also, it is also in Berlin where I was um, active in housing movements, also for a long time. And And personally, I live in one of the most gentrified areas of my city. So that's my background. And I think it's fair to say against that background that writing about gentrification is both an academic, but also a very political and personal matter for me. Then maybe the next question kind of is logical after what you just said. So how did this book come about and why did you start working on gentrification? Yeah. Why did I start working on gentrification? Well, that's uh, a longer time ago. Actually, I started to become interested in gentrification in the mid-90s when gentrification happened at my doorsteps. And back then, the term gentrification was not actually very popular in Germany. I would think in Berlin, not more than a dozen people would use that, people from the academia. Um, and seeing gentrification happen at my in my neighborhood where I lived, I came across a few geography and sociology texts which talked about gentrification in the US and the UK as a student. 
And then immediately, um, as they say, a, a, a light bulb web went up in my head. So I thought, wow, this is exactly what's happening here. So this is how I got interested in gentrification as a, as a topic. Um, and for all the time, I often had the feeling that I had difficulties to um, connect the big theories, which came from mostly the US and UK, uh, with the particularities of the gentrification that I experienced here in Berlin. So the issue of comparability had occupied me for quite a long time already. Uh, the final motivation uh, for writing this book, I think, came within the last decade. Um, and it was, I think, triggered by uh, a deep seated frustration with the way in which gentrification is currently discussed in urban studies. Um, and what I have in mind with this are actually two things. Uh, the first is the matter of comparability and of comparison. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that although gentrification is around as a, as a, as a concept for more than half a century, it's been invented by Ruth Glass, a British-German sociologist in 1964 in London, um, Although we know about gentrification for quite a while, I think it's I think this situation is such that the urban studies world is increasingly split in two camps, uh, where one camp argues that gentrification doesn't work as a concept anymore. It's outdated. It would have worked for places like the Lower East Side in New York City in the 1980s, but it's of no use anymore in the 21st century and for cities outside the US, UK. So this camp argues that gentrification should lay to bed because it's a very particular concept. And at the same time, you have other researchers uh, which argue exactly the opposite, who emphasize that gentrification has now become a global process. It's experienced in cities as different as uh, Osaka in Japan and Oaxaca in Mexico, um, that it's really important and that this concept should be used uh, in a more flexible form, but kept as a general concept with universal value. And the strange thing is that both camps uh, hardly, you know, interact a lot. So um, there is hardly much movement between the front line and uh, around, across the front line, if you wish. And as a reviewer for academic journals, I very often get across papers on gentrification in a specific city at a specific place. And usually these papers either argue that gentrification is specific at where they research, and that's why they can't call, call it gentrification, because it's unlike gentrification in the 80s in the US. Or they say, although it's very specific, uh, it could still be called gentrification. And I find this is uh, intellectual... Uh, dead-end street. Intellectually, it's a dead-end street because it doesn't do a lot with the context. Uh, instead, it, you know, it just can't make its mind up uh, how to deal with the fact that gentrification in, again, say, Oaxaca, Mexico nowadays is different from gentrification in New York City in the 1980s. And that is actually what should be expected. So there's a problem in urban research with dealing with context and particularity. That was the first frustration I had, and I thought that one should be able, you know, to move uh, beyond that problem, to find a new conceptualization which enables to 
acknowledge gentrification as a universal process, but also allow for more particularity. Um, the second reason is that I find much of the research I have read on gentrification not very political, uh, in the sense that it doesn't provide much guidance in uh, with what to do about gentrification, what can be done in order to undo gentrification, to uh, avoid its negative consequences and so on. Um, and implying the danger of oversimplification, I would say that most of the gentrification literature is um, guided by two basic explanations for gentrification. One comes historically from the Chicago School of Urban Research from the 1920s and more or less argues that gentrification happens when, um, when, when a group of residents with a higher social status moves into an area which is inhabited by a population with a lower social status. And once this happens, uh, the buying power of the, of the in-movers leads to rising prices, rising housing costs, and this ends up in a displacement of lower-income people. That's what's been called the demand-side explanation of gentrification. At the same time, you have a supply-side explanation of gentrification, mostly developed by Marxist geographers like Neil Smith in the 1970s, which would argue that gentrification happens because capital is reinvested into undervalued land, undervalued properties. And when this happens, prices are driven up. And this, again, leads to a displacement of low-income people. Um, both explanations sort of have their value but they don't actually provide much guidance in what to do. Um, if you follow the demand side explanations, then gentrification, basically gentrifiers are to blame for gentrification. And the only thing you can do is to stop people moving in. If you follow the supply side explanations, gentrification is embedded into the nature of capitalism. And then the logical implication would be that gentrification can only be abolished when, when capitalism is abolished which also doesn't provide much practical guidance on what to do for housing movements, for example. So I would say that the way that gentrification studies are configurated has not helped too much for uh, political movements, for political choices, and it has led to a lot of irritation and mirror fencing even among radical scholars. So these are the both issues that really frustrated me and this was the main motivation for writing a book that describes the political history of gentrification in the three cities I've written about, but also suggests a different uh, conceptual perspective on gentrification. I find this political dimension of your book uh, very interesting and very important, and I hope we have time to get back to it later. Yeah. But for now, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you define gentrification and where does your book stand in this uh, very contentious field of gentrification studies? Yeah. Right. Um, how do I define gentrification? Well, the definition of gentrification has actually been a matter of academic debate for a long time too. What I do is I follow Eric Clark's uh, definition of gentrification, Eric Clark, geographer from Sweden. Um, and I count all processes of gentrification that involve a change in the population of land users such that new users are of a higher economic status than the previous users, together with an associated change in the built environment through, an, through a reinvestment of fixed capital, I quote. 
for me, two issues are in the core of gentrification or are in the core of my interest in gentrification. One is the investment of capital into the built environment. So the idea is that it's not only about houses uh, becoming renovated, a neighborhood becoming uh, posh and fashionable, but it's about the idea that uh, this has to do with investment and that investment is done for profit, right? So gentrification is embedded into the economy, into um, investing money for the sake of profit. And the second moment, which I find crucial for understanding gentrification, is the displacement of low-income residents by more affluent users. So if no displacement takes place, if, for example, incumbent upgrading happens where people stay at their spot but just get higher incomes, or if displacement is not connected with investment and with profit-making, like in the case of, say, ethnic cleansing, I wouldn't call it gentrification. So I think that's where I would position myself um, with regard to the definition. Um, with this definition, I think I position myself in closer relation to economic, political economy definitions of gentrification. Um, and I've been interested in... Um, providing explanations and conceptualizations for gentrification which um, make it possible to um, apply these explanations in a more contextualized way and which bring in the institutional and political configurations in which gentrification uh, can happen. And your book is a comparative project. You have three very different cities. Uh, uh, well, maybe you could also introduce our listeners to those three cities. Why these three? Uh, and how does this kind of, how do these three cities help you make your argument? Okay, okay, I see. Well, let me start with the three cities. The three cities are uh, London, Berlin, and St. Petersburg in Russia. And these are obviously, I mean, Every tourist knows that. Very different cities. Uh, London is actually the birthplace of gentrification. That is where gentrification was first observed in the, in the 1960s and where lots of uh, studies have been written about gentrification. Uh, London and the UK in general um, has a housing system which is very much built around home ownership. Um, historical studies of gentrification or if you talk about gentrification in London, say with a taxi driver, then the assumption is always it's about uh, pushing out low-income tenants and replacing them by more affluent homeowners. That's basically what gentrification is about in London. At the same time, London and the UK in general had a rich history of uh, council-owned, of state-owned social housing, uh, much of which has been uh, privatized by now. Um, so the background of gentrification in London is really an ongoing uh, neoliberalization of housing and, and, and the city for, for decades, uh, which has led to waves after waves of gentrification and even super gentrification, as, as some authors have called it. Berlin is a bit of a different story. Um, until the 1990s, um, hardly anybody would talk about gentrification. 
uh, in Berlin. And even in the late 1990s, it was very contested among scholars whether gentrification could be a concept applied applicable to Berlin. Um, so gentrification sort of had a very low start, a slow start in Berlin, but by now gentrification has really become um, a, ma a major dynamic in Berlin's housing market. Um, large parts of the Indian city have been gentrified by now, and it's really also the term has become very popular. Um, you could talk uh, to a taxi driver about gentrification. I, it's, it's a regular topic uh, when you get invited to parties, which neighborhood is gentrified and which is not, and which is about to be gentrified and so on. This is particularly interesting because gentrification in Berlin happened against the background of a highly regulated rental market and a traditionally interventionist state. Um, so in contrast uh, to, to, to London, the state played a state intervention played a huge role um, also in impeding or slowing down gentrification for a long time in Berlin. That's what makes Berlin particularly interesting. St. Petersburg, again, is a very different case. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, gentrification is actually hard to find it in St. Petersburg. And I think, Anna, when we first met, we had exactly this discussion. Um, in theory, large parts of the inner city of, of, of St. Petersburg should be gentrified for quite a long time. But in practice, actually, if gentrification happens, it happens only in a fragmented um, and very much impeded way. And the explanation for this in St. Petersburg is to be found in the post-socialist transformation of, of, of Russia and in the fragmentation of property ownership rights, property rights and property ownership that uh, went hand into hand in hand with this particular trajectory of post-socialist transformation. So what we have is three very different cities, although all of them are in Europe. Um, I think they... Um, stand for different political and institutional histories, and they also stand for very different housing systems into which gentrification is embedded. So from a, from an, from a, from a theory standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, I would say that these three cities are dissimilar enough to provide enough material for comparison um, and enable, uh, enable comparing different, how, how different institutional factors influence uh, gentrification, how they impact on it. Of course, bringing in even more cities or even more dissimilar cities would have been possible and would have provided an even richer story. Um, but this is actually beyond what I could do for very practical reasons. And this brings me to the second reason why I chose these three cities. And that is uh, that Russian, English and German are the only languages I speak to a degree which allows me to do research there, uh, to read documents, to talk to people. And, and I find it important uh, not to rely on desktop research, which can be done in English, but to really try and understand uh, the different contexts using local sources, uh, engaging with, with people from there. And it's also true that I'm a bit familiar with all three cities. I was a bit familiar with all three cities already before I started. That's obvious for Berlin because I am a Berliner, but I've also lived in London and St. Petersburg before. So it was easier to uh, engage with these actual places. Um, and I couldn't have done this sort of research in Rio de Janeiro 
or in Shanghai, where I don't speak the languages and know next to nothing about uh, the countries. Um, so I see some people might see uh, my choice of my selection of cases as a limitation because it doesn't include it doesn't actually include cases from the global south. Um, nevertheless, I hope that people from elsewhere will find my work uh, interesting enough to pick up on it and criticize it, continue on it, revise it uh, wherever possible. So I'm I'm really open, and I hope that this book is also read beyond the three places I studied and provides interesting messages for there. And I still would like us to spend a bit more time talking about methodology because comparative urbanism is such a hot topic these days in uh, urban studies. And could you tell us a bit more about your research strategy and what this comparative method actually allowed you to do? And how did you go about like collecting data, uh, working with this uh, data and so on? Right. Um, So my research strategy was... Um, very much influenced by what uh, Karl Marx in his Grundrisse in the 19th century called uh, the ascending from the abstract to the concrete and the descending from the concrete to the abstract. So what I did is that I started with the theoretical concept, the rent gap, which is one of the most used explanations for gentrification. And I examined the limitations of this concept, concepts which I mainly see in the disregard of the institutional and political conditions for gentrification. And with this understanding of the limitations and of the importance of uh, the institutional preconditions for gentrification in mind, I delved into the three cases, into three neighborhoods uh, in the three cities that I uh, studied. Um, And I identified matters of commodification and decommodification which have pushed, altered or impeded gentrification over the course of time. And on this basis I developed uh, a new concept which I call the commodification gap. I think I will come back to that soon. Uh, Which I then applied to uh, the cases, to the neighborhoods in more detail to give um, political institutional history of gentrification. So I moved back and forth between theoretical concepts and empirical reality in different cases to finally arrive at a different conceptualization of gentrification, which enabled me, I hope, uh, to tell a different story of gentrification than has been told. So about this concept, uh, you introduced the concept of commodification gap. Uh, Why don't you talk a bit more about that? Uh, how is it different from the rent gap and how are you building on this uh, famous uh, theory of rent gap? Right. Um, what I call the commodification gap is the disparity between the potential ground rent level that can be achieved for a piece of land when it's fully commodified and the actual ground rent for a piece of land when it's decommodified. So the idea behind that is that land and housing Um, And capitalism is a commodity, of course, but at the same time, uh, there's hardly any place in the world where the commodity character of housing or land is not to some degree restricted, regulated, altered or modified. 
uh, typical examples for that in, in European countries would be rent regulations, the existence of social housing, um, regulations for taking a mortgage, um, property rights, zoning, all you name it, right? And I argue that it's only when uh, the gap between what you could achieve for a piece of land, when these regulations and <clears throat> instances of decommodification were lifted, so the gap, only when the gap between uh, a commodified and a decommodified and, and commodification and decommodification is closed sufficiently, uh, investment in housing becomes an option and gentrification is set into action. So capital uh, only flows when the barriers um, to commodification are taken away and when land is predominantly a commodity uh, that where reinvestment can compete with the rates of return into other investments. So the point is that gentrification, in other words, demands the relative weakness in existence or lifting of components of housing provision that are decommodified. When, when this doesn't uh, take place, when this is not achieved, gentrification doesn't take place. So the whole thing is really about the interplay of commodification and decommodification. How does uh, this relate to the rent gap? Uh, the point, I think, is the rent gap and the commodification gap, for me, in my understanding, uh, work in tandem. It is only when there is a difference between the potential ground rent and the actual ground rent level, um, with, when investment is motivated. That is actually the argument of the rent gap. But the thing is that... Um, the rent gap can only operate through the interplay of commodification and decommodification. So while there's no commodification without a rent gap, there can be no rent gap without a commodification gap. The whole idea, I think, is that in order to make gentrification possible, capital has to flow into a piece of land or housing. But in order to do so, it needs to work its way around existing institutions and regulations. And as these are subject to political and historical contestation and change, uh, so does gentrification. Uh, in your book, you have uh, a chapter on different housing, on, th on the three housing systems nationally, but you also have three chapters on three different neighborhoods in each of the three cities. And I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about examples of how it actually works in those neighborhoods and how you apply your concept to these different empirical cases. Right, right. Well, I think it's important to understand that the neighborhood scale, the low, the, 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 the regional scale, the city, the national scale, and even the global scale need to be studied as interlinked when studying gentrification, right? Um, but the way these are interlinked um, happens takes place in different um, in different forms, in different ways, uh, in different cases and in different times. Let me give you two examples for this. Um, if you study the gentrification of Barnsbury, that's the neighborhood I studied in London uh, in the 1980s, then uh, the right to buy introduced by the Thatcher government in 1981, I think, uh, has been very decisive. Uh, at that moment in time, half of the housing stock in Barnsbury 
was actually council housing. It was owned by the state. It was not put on the market, but it was used as social housing. Um, the Thatcher government back then introduced um, a statutory right for council housing tenants to buy their apartment at discounted prices. Um, that happened quite often then. And I could spot a number of flats which have been sold under the right to buy in the 1980s um, and which were resold five, six, seven times after that and which are now sold on the market for 1.5 million pounds. So the commodification in this, uh, in this, uh, in this example, in this case, the commodification gap in this case is the gap between housing treated as a non-commodity, as council housing, as a public infrastructure, and uh, the same housing houses being unfrozen, put on the market, the housing value being unfrozen, the housing put on the market, and now bar, now um, sold and and purchased at very high prices uh, by very low, by very high income people. Uh, without that government intervention, this particular housing stock could have worked as a firewall against gentrification. Uh, through this intervention, it actually worked like pouring oil into fire. Um, it accelerated an already uh, happening gentrification process, um, and it provided new housing, new gentrifiable housing. So this intervention was very much implemented in the case of, of, of the UK at that time uh, through the central government. There was actually nothing that the local council, the local government of that particular borough would, could, could do against it. At the same time, it had a very specific geography within the neighborhood because where the council owned and did not own housing uh, was obviously geographically uneven. And you can follow that even through statistics, uh, social, social composition statistics, even now, where you can follow that history of gentrification. In Germany, in Prenzlauberg, the history is a completely different one. Gentrification here happens in a rental system. Um, and that rental system is very complicated. Um, and at the same time, it happens in an environment where uh, the three tiers of state in Germany all have regulatory competences and where there has been an intensive tug of war uh, between uh, the local level, the, the, the regional state level and the, the national level about which rent regulations are in place and how tenants um, should be protected against rent increases in a gentrification area. Um, and that actually was a back and forth all through the 1990s and 2000s. And again, uh, I could, I mean, if we, if we walked to my area, I could really show you a very different compositions of uh, residents uh, sitting cheek by jowl between different houses dependent on when this house was renovated and which regulation was in place at that particular moment in time. So what we see is only with these two examples, and I could, of course, talk hours for that, um, we see a very different interplay of different scales, which can only be understood uh, if we do not privilege a particular scale, be it the neighborhood scale or the national scale, um, for, for explaining gentrification. Instead, what we need to do is to look at all of them at the same time and bring them together 
in a way that uh, allows for a dynamic picture which changes through history. So what I've done then is to really work out, I think, 12 commodification gaps which worked at different times um, in the neighborhoods I studied in London, Berlin, and St. Petersburg. And if I would have taken other neighborhoods or included more cases, we could have even more commodification gaps. So you said you would talk about two examples, but I would like to force you to talk about the third example. So ah, St. Petersburg. Petersburg right. <laughs> yes. What about it? And how how does it help you to to see more about gentrification in other places? The fact that you use uh, St. Petersburg as, ex as an example. Right. Um, the main thing about gentrification in St. Petersburg and in Russia and about housing in Russia in general, I think, is uh, the immense fragmentation of property. So Russia, uh, in Russia, housing until 1991 uh, was uh, state-owned. All housing belonged to the state in a communist system. So after 1991, housing was privatized and the existing housing was privatized to its sitting residents. However, uh, this privatization was voluntarily. So residents had to apply to own their apartment and they could get this apartment at a nominal fee. Um, the effect of this was an immense um, fragmentation of property situations. If you go to a normal house, a normal multifamily residential building in the center of St. Petersburg, you would usually find um, five different classes of residents. Uh, one could be a resident who lived in the house in the same flat actually in 1991, privatized it and continues living there since then. The second uh, flat could be inhabited by somebody who bought the flat from somebody who, pro who, who privatized it in 1991 um, using mortgage or cash and might have to, and this person might have to even repay the loan, so there is some financial burden included. Whereas uh, re residents who privatize their apartments usually pay, uh, by and large, the operating costs only and, and some taxes and fees. Uh, thirdly, you could have uh, people who rent their flat um, from the person who privatized or bought the flat in the, in the previous decades. So these would be tenants, and tenants in Russia are, by and large, very unprotected. Uh, they are, as a Russian scholar Shormina called it, a forgotten minority in the in the regulation system about housing. Fourthly, you could have people who lived in the apartment in 1991, or their heirs, but uh, refused to privatize their apartment. So they are regarded as municipal tenants. And fifthly, you could have uh, inhabitants which who live um, in non-privatized apartments, municipal apartments, and who were given these apartments, who were allocated to these apartments because they are on low income as social, as social housing tenants. Obviously, both the housing costs between these five types of households and the valorization strategies are very different. And the strange thing is they can even um, change over time. So it's not untypical that um, a granny who privatized her apartment that she lived in since the siege in the 1940s and who never left her apartment all through the lifetime um, lives in that apartment most of the year but then moves out to her dacha 
in summer and rents out the apartment to tourists. What this um, ends up with is that uh, these houses, these buildings are very hard to gentrify from the standpoint of an investor. Uh, I've talked to a number of investors in, in St. Petersburg about, uh, about the chances and the ways to gentrify a building, to renovate a building and achieve higher prices for the flats if they are sold or rented out. And all of them were really frustrated. I mean, they told me that um, renovating a building in St. Petersburg doesn't generate profits, but only headaches. Um, there was a lot of talk about uh, the issue of, as they call, or call it, the holdout resident, uh, the, about the necessity of settling a deal with each individual in these apartments and in these houses and find 50, 40, 40, 50 different solutions for the people who live in there and how difficult this is. And, you know, I had investors who would say, well, you know, we had everything signed and sealed. And then we had this one guy who didn't want to leave the apartment just for matters of principle. Um, we had already cut gas and electricity for him for a year or so, but he still didn't want to move out and that crushed the whole project. So what this results in is that gentrification in St. Petersburg usually takes place not at the level of uh, of, of the whole buildings, at least for historic buildings, but uh, only at the level of individual apartments. Um, that leads to an immense splintering of gentrification over a huge geographical area uh, in, his, in the historical stock. Where gentrification does actually take place is in the form of new build gentrification. Uh, new buildings that are often built on industrial brownlands, on, on industrial wastelands. Um, but that, interestingly, is not in the historical stock, which most people would regard as the most gentrifiable stock in, you know, North American, West European experiences, but it happens elsewhere. So gentrification in, in Russia and in St. Petersburg in particular uh, is a very interesting puzzle, which I think points you uh, to housing, to, to, the, to the possibility that housing can theoretically be a commodity, but not be treated as a commodity or not being tradable as a commodity due to complicated and fragmented property rights. That is, I think, the lesson of St. Petersburg, which is, I think, not even not often regarded in gentrification studies because the existence of private property and the availability of capital are often taken as granted. And St. Petersburg, I think, points you to a situation where both of these issues cannot be taken for granted but uh, need to be produced in very intricate and complicated ways. This is very interesting. Uh, but technically, am I right to say that Prenzlauer Berg is also technically a post-socialist place, yeah, isn't it? Right. So you're if right. you compare St. Petersburg's central district to Prenzlauer Berg, like why are they different, given that they have this right. kind of transition Oh, very easy. Um, the ways of transi transition, the, the trajectories of transition uh, between from capitalist, from socialist uh, property to, to capitalism were very different in the two cases. Uh, I talked already, I already talked about St. Petersburg. Uh, in, in Germany, in East Germany, the situation is a completely different one. Uh, here, uh, the transformation from socialism to capitalism. Uh, was mainly accompanied by a restitution of property to the former owners or their heirs. Um, 
So in areas like Prenzlauer Berg, where, which are, were already built up before World War II, houses were given back to their original owners, and usually they were sold quite, quite, quite fastly. Um, and I think this accounts for something like 90, 95% of the buildings here. And let me give you an example from my personal biography. I lived in a rundown flat uh, in Prenzlauer Berg in the late 90s, and at around Christmas 1997, I received a letter from uh, from 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 an owner uh, who said, "Well, the decision about restitution of my property has been taken, and uh, he is now the owner of that property." And then, in the week to follow, I received two other letters from other companies who uh, would tell that they uh, bought the property from others, right? So my, 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 my flat was originally restituted to three old Jewish ladies, two of whom uh, lived in New York City, one in Buenos Aires. So they were obviously survivors of the, of the Holocaust, of the Shoah. And obviously they didn't have an interest to act as landladies in Berlin. So they sold the property to a company and then this company resold it to another one and that then even to a third one and always at higher prices within one week. So what this affected in at the level of the neighborhood is that most, um, most, most parcels, most pieces of land got into the hands of, uh, of private companies in, in a very short amount of time. And these private companies bought them at high prices at a heated up housing market in order to um, valorize them quite uh, quickly and to make profit with them. So what this affected in is a really strong pre strong market pressure, clear property rights, and high incentives to renovate the building and demand higher prices after that. So in contrast to to, to St. Petersburg, uh, the transformation from socialism to, po to, to capitalism happened in a way which introduced, um, which made gentrification uh, easily possible um, and made reinvestment easily possible. Uh, so one of the big contributions of your book, as you said earlier, is the political dimension of gentrification. And uh, there are two sides, like I have two questions about it, but mm -hmm. the first one is about the role of the state. How does the state play into all of these processes and how does it differ between the three um, cases in your book? All right. Um... Let me start with a more abstract consideration of the state. Uh, quite, quite frankly, uh, the role of the state is crucial in gentrification. That's uh, the baseline, the bottom line of the whole book. Um, and when I say the role of the state is crucial, then I'm very much guided by, um, by, by scholars, by the work of scholars in economic sociology. Uh, who for a long time emphasized that there is no market without states, that uh, economy, society, and states um, are interwoven and that they shouldn't be separated in the analysis, uh, but, uh, but that their relation needs to be um, seen as, um, well, as an interrelation, as, 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 as connected. Um, 
And at the same time, all these scholars have emphasized how uh, the relation between states and economies is changeable over time and how much it is subject to political contestation. So that's how I see the role of, of the state in relation to the economy in gentrification too. Um, and that is why uh, my idea about the commodification gap uh, is very much built on the on the interplay between commodification, a matter of the economy, and decommodification as something which is usually enacted through state power. So what states do, how they do it, and why they do it becomes very central to my understanding of gentrification. Um, and I think that this makes the analysis very dynamic, uh, but also, I'm sorry, but also very much open to political histories. Um, that is, I think, in very abstract terms, um, what this book is about. Um, but then, you know, if you ask me about the three states, then very obviously the history of the three states is a very different one. And uh, the structures and how these states are built, uh, what states can do and what they cannot do, is uh, not only different between the three countries, but also different across history. And that even goes down to, to the understanding of, of very simple things. Uh, if we talk about social housing, for example, then in Great Britain, uh, social housing is housing which is owned by, uh, by, by the state, by the local state, um, which is owned like, which is treated actually like public infrastructure, like schools and streets. In Germany, social housing is a subsidy program. Uh, for private investors who get subsidies from the state and in return grant occupational rights and, and rent limitations for a certain amount of time. And after this, is the, the social housing status is lost, uh, it expires then. And this is very much embedded into the idea of Germany being a social market economy, which is even enshrined in the German constitution. If you move to Russia and talk about social housing, then it's very often with social housing. I don't even know if this term as such exists in Russia, but what you could see as social housing is more or less leftovers from the privatization uh, houses, housing that was not privatized in the 1990s. So for Russia, the history um, of a communist state, which was then in a very specific way transformed to a capitalist system um, without actually um, giving any space for much social intervention in the form of welfareist housing, of welfare housing in the first place, is also very decisive. And the thing is, to make it even more complicated, that these histories change over time. So what I do in the book in that chapter that you mentioned on the national histories of housing, I really follow these particular histories of housing and of housing regulation and housing, how housing is seen and treated by the state and how this changes over a century um, and follow how these different histories impact on the institutions which are important for making housing investment viable, but also for defining housing costs and the likelihood with which um, residents can actually stay put in uh, housing and gentrified areas. Um, I found your analysis of the state and its role in gentrification processes very compelling, but what I found even more kind of 
uh, fascinating is your analysis of a different political player, which is like different social movements, activists. So generally the political struggles around housing in these three countries or cities. Could you talk a little bit more about how you see the role of activists and social movements in these processes and maybe like what lessons can they learn from your book? Well, it's crucial. Uh, The role of housing struggles, housing movements, political struggles is absolutely crucial. And I think the point here is that states should not be taken as monoliths, as something independent from the society. Uh, They are rather, as um, Pulanzas has once expressed it, uh, relations of forces between classes and fractions of classes that are expressed in a specific manner. So this balance of forces um, that is achieved in political struggles uh, gets then enshrined into the very forms of statehood. So if there is, for example, a ministry which deals with housing or development welfare or, or if there isn't, but also in the forms of, form of legislations. Is there rent regulation or is there no rent regulation? How is this rent regulation designed and so on and so forth? So um, from regarding housing as something that is embedded into an interplay of commodification and decommodification, we arrive at, uh, at regarding the relation between economy and the state. And if we do that, then we have to see the state, uh, what the state does and how it does it as an outcome of political struggles. So political struggles and political movements are absolutely crucial uh, to the political dynamics that enable or disable gentrification. Uh, That's very obvious to me. Um, And then the question is, of course, what, and I think if I get, if I got you right, you were also asking uh, what this book can, 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 can do to inform these political struggles. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I think, of course, it's an academic book. Um, And what my book does is it, uh, it tries to bring policies back into the explanation of gentrification. And as such, it's a theory work targeted on the scientific community. But I hope that it will enable an understanding of gentrification, which is more open and more easily connectable, uh, more easily connected to political struggles. Um, I'm certainly not the first one who understands that policies are important for housing. Um, That's very obvious. I mean, everybody knows this. But I I think, as, as I already said, I'm... I've been active in housing movements uh, for a long time, and and if you if you, if you do that, if you uh, work in housing movements and with housing movements, then it's often striking to see how uh, few gentrification literature and gentrification theories uh, actually do in informing these struggles. And 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 I think this is both true for supply and demand side explanations. Um, so what I hope this book can do is to enable a reading of gentrification that doesn't limit gentrification either to the invasion of gentrifiers into a low-income neighborhood or just point to the fact that gentrification is embedded into capitalism but uh, to enable uh, a view on gentrification which puts um, the political struggles um, around commodification and decommodification uh, into the center of attention so my book is meant as a tool to, as a tool that assists readers in exactly doing to, doing this, 
paying attention to commodification and decommodification and to provide an understanding that is hopefully a bit more helpful for uh, getting the actual political choices um, in, 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 in actual housing struggles. Well, and last but not least, uh, I hope it's an interesting story about Berlin, uh, London and St. Petersburg. Well, probably my next question is not directly re related to the book, but you mentioned yeah. being yourself a scholar activist. So what kind of uh, movements did you participate in and mm -hmm. what this experience meant for you as a scholar? I, do, I don't even know whether I would call myself a scholar activist. The term scholar activist has become very popular and for radical urban studies uh, in the last decade or so. And often I find it difficult to understand what it actually means in practice. So what I can say is that I have been active uh, in my neighborhood when it was gentrified in the 1990s in different neighborhood tenant initiatives um, where we tried, you know, to push for stronger regulations on rent increases, um, on more restrictions um, in order to prevent uh, the transformation of rental housing uh, to, into owner occupation and all of that. And later on, I was active um, in a referendum on housing in Berlin in general. Um, and I'm also supporting the exchange uh, Deutsche Wohnen Enteignen campaign, which runs in Berlin at the moment and tries to basically ban corporate uh, financialized landlords from our city's housing market. So that's what I've been doing. And at the same time, I've been an urban studies scholar uh, since, I think, well, I finished my, my first degree in 1996. I did my PhD in 2001. And I've been interested in, the, in, in housing, gentrification, segregation, all this stuff. And of course, I mean, since I'm still the same person, these two moments of, of my me interact in a way. Um, but I'm not sure whether I would call myself a, a scholar activist or an activist scholar. And maybe to wrap up our very interesting interview, last question, what are you working on now? And what do what, what are we to expect from you in the next months oh, and years? Oh, well, actually, on very different topics. Um, so with that book on gentrification, I kind of have the feeling that I said most of what I can say about gentrification at the moment. So at the moment, I'm uh, pretty much working on the chain on, on the transformation of large housing estates in East Germany, uh, which have been very socially homogenous uh, and ethnically, ethnically homogenous in the past and which have now become hubs of immigration, uh, mainly for refugees from Syria, Afghanistan and now Ukraine, and which change their character. And this is, of course, has a lot of implications for public infrastructure, for housing, uh, for convivality in these neighborhoods so that's very much what i've been work what i'm working on now and i hope to get more into housing policies uh, very soon also Sounds in terms great. Of work. thank you so much for this uh, interview and best of luck with your next project uh, take care well thank you anna